October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast, Episode 33, Reconstruction. Last time, we finished up our look at the 1888 General Conference Session and the great need of the Seventh-day Adventist Church to have a Christ-like spirit. We talked about how members of the old guard appealed to tradition and tried to play the victim card and generally resisted Jones and Wagner any way they could. Of course, we saw how Ellen White reacted to all of that. She called them babies. And finally, we ended with Butler resigning the presidency of the church with Ole Olson stepping in, except he was an ocean away, so Willie White held the reins for him for a few months until he could arrive. So what do you do in the aftermath of the 1888 General Conference? I suppose it was tempting for Ellen White, A.T. Jones, and E.J. Wagner to all go home and just take a few months off. You know, it's California, sit on the beach, relax, recover. Well, if that was tempting, it was an easy temptation for them to overcome. The 1888 General Conference session was, as I've called it at least, the last and biggest battle in the Avenus Civil War. In the American Civil War, most people would say that Gettysburg was the turning point in the war. Yet neither Gettysburg nor the 1888 General Conference could be considered decisive victories on their own. A defensive victory is seldom decisive. It needs to be followed up by an attack. And Gettysburg blunted the South's sword, but it did not break it. It remained for the North to do something with Gettysburg, to push South, or else the victory at Gettysburg would have been wasted. The same is true for Ellen White, Jones, and Wagner after 1888. They held line. They prevented the old guard from passing resolutions which would have put a muzzle on them. They were able to teach their views. But as the frustrated delegates retreated from Minneapolis and spread out across the country, there was a very real possibility that they might spread their frustration among the churches. Ellen White had won a very slim defensive victory. But if she didn't act soon, if she didn't attack, it would all be for nothing. And that's how she, Jones, and Wagner would spend the next few years, zipping across the country, preaching every chance they could get. There were still pockets of resistance, but it was time for reconstruction, of rebuilding the bonds of the church. Now, the first and greatest challenge was Battle Creek, the church's capital and the stronghold for the old guard. Ellen White was asked to preach there shortly after the general conference session ended, an invitation she believed they soon regretted. Sabbath morning, two elders of the church approached Ellen White and casually asked her what she was preaching about. Well, it must not have been too casual, because Ellen White read between the lines. Those two elders were wondering if Ellen White was going to be preaching about righteousness by faith. Was Ellen White going to come into Uriah Smith's house and start preaching the ideas he fought so hard against in Minneapolis? Well, it turns out that yes, yes she was. Now, she wasn't doing it out of spite or in order to be cheeky. She was doing it because she firmly believed the church had lost sight of Jesus and they needed to be brought back around to the cross. So when those two young elders in Battle Creek asked her what she was going to be speaking on, she brought the heat. Quote, Brethren, you leave that matter with the Lord and Sister White, for neither the Lord nor Sister White will need to be dictated to by the brethren as to what subject she will bring before them. 
I am at home in Battle Creek. On the ground we have broken through the strength of God, and we ask not permission to take the desk in the tabernacle. I take it as my rightful position accorded me of God. End quote. Whew. Then Ellen White shocked the elders by asking them if A.T. Jones could speak. <laughs> she recognized that Jones, no matter how right he was, wasn't in her position. He couldn't demand the pulpit of the church as his right. Ellen White was the church's prophet and one of its three founders. She built Battle Creek with her own sweat and prayers. She could speak in Battle Creek on whatever she wanted, and if the leaders didn't like it, then they would just have to deal with it. But Jones was another matter. It kind of reminds you of that story in Acts chapter 19 where some Jews were casting out demons in the name of Jesus and Paul, and the demon replies, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Well, I'm not saying anyone in this situation are demons, just that it was easier to say no to Jones and Wagner than it was to Ellen White, who had long since proved herself. The elder said that they had to go ask Uriah Smith permission for Jones to speak. Then do this at once, Ellen White told them, for time is precious and there is a message to come to this people and the Lord requires you to open the way. So the elders scurried off to talk to Uriah Smith. Ellen White preached and preached the next day and preached the next day and still no word had come back from Uriah Smith on whether Jones could preach. She would ask the elders here and there, but finally she had to corner them. The elders told her that, surprise, Smith wasn't going to let Jones speak in Battle Creek. Smith said that Jones had taken some, quote, strong views, end quote, on some issues, and his presence might just be a little divisive. Mm-hmm. Speaking of someone with strong views, if Ellen White were a dragon, smoke would be coming out of her nostrils at this point. She said she felt her spirit stir within her, which probably meant she was boiling over in righteous indignation. She bemoaned these Pharisees and said that she wouldn't rest until the grace of Christ was back in the church. One of the principles of the Protestant Reformation goes by the Latin phrase semper reformanda, and it means that the church should always be reforming. Implicit in this is a recognition of the phenomenon of spiritual entropy, that given enough time, the church tends to drift towards corruption or complacency. Ellen White recognized it in the Adventist church. She said that the church of the late 1880s was no better than the churches the first Adventists had abandoned. Adventists had failed to reform themselves, and Ellen White hoped she wouldn't have to call people to leave the Adventist church and start over. That's how serious this was. Ellen left Battle Creek to speak to the Michigan pastors in Potterville, a small town on the road to Lansing. In Potterville, she introduced an interesting principle when she told the pastors there to be aware of the reasons why they often unite together. You see, it's tempting when you see a friend rebuked to unite with him in sympathy or to strike out and defend him. You don't really think about whether he's right or wrong, only that he's your friend and you should have his back. Or if a prominent leader takes a stand, the tendency is to stand with him out of loyalty. But your loyalty, Ellen White told them, should be to God. Don't instinctively look to your church leaders to know if something is right or not. Don't stick up for your friends without thinking about whether they're right or wrong. What matters is what God thinks. It's only when the cord of affection first connects you to God that you can then be connected to others in a spiritually healthy way. Doubtless, 
Ellen White said all this because what she witnessed during the 1888 meetings was a handful of people like Butler who truly studied out their position. But the rest were just followers. They banded together and repeated what their leader said. Like Smith, many of them had barely bothered to understand the opposition. In the words of Butler, surely such a man as Elder Uriah Smith couldn't be wrong. And that's where people's faith was. Their faith was in the age and experience of their leaders. Their faith was in the old age of their doctrine. Now, leaving Michigan, Ellen White headed for Des Moines, Iowa, because Iowa hates being left out of a rebellion against Ellen White. They have a reputation to uphold. It's where Butler grew up. It's where J.N. Andrews and John Loughborough fled in their early years. It's where the Marion Party set up shop to oppose Ellen White. It's where Snook and Brinkerhoff rebelled. Anyway, you get the idea. Iowa wasn't all bad. It was just another center for conservative resistance against Ellen White, Jones, and Wagner. And when you get a glimpse at Ellen White's calendar, you can see how hard she was working. It seems she even forgot her 61st birthday and was bewildered as to why people were coming into her room to see her. After the general conference had ended on November 8th, this is what her schedule looked like for the year. She preached in Battle Creek for a few days, then she spent those five days in Potterville, a week in Des Moines, back to Battle Creek for a week of prayer, which kind of ended up being a month of prayer, then out to Massachusetts, where she spoke 11 times, then down to D.C., where she spoke six times. She spoke once in Pennsylvania, three times in New York, again in Battle Creek, a two-week meeting in Chicago. She spoke some more in Battle Creek, spent three weeks in Kansas, then back to Pennsylvania, where she spoke 10 times, then it was New York, Michigan, more Michigan, even more Michigan, followed by Colorado, California, and then back to Colorado again for the 1889 General Conference. Are you still with me? Because that's an insane amount of traveling for A.T. Jones, who often went with Ellen, let alone a 61-year-old woman in the 1800s. Ellen White's message was always the same. Doesn't mean she said it all word for word the same, but... Her point was always to invite the church to return to Jesus, to return to the cross. The Jones-Wagner-White national tour worked. At Chicago, she and Jones faced the Illinois Conference president, R.M. Kilgore, the very same Kilgore who wanted to table any discussion of righteousness by faith in 1888 merely because George Butler couldn't be present. The very same Kilgore Ellen White had told, I have lost confidence in you. Well, for the first half of those Chicago meetings, Ellen White felt like she was just hitting a wall with the ministers who were there. But she finally broke through, and she wrote to Willie, quote, Oh, how hard it was to educate the people to look away from themselves, to Jesus and to his righteousness. A continuous effort has had to be put forth, end quote. Now Kilgore came around, too. The first general to defect from Butler and Smith's army. Ellen noted that his face fairly shines. He talks and cries and praises God. I believe he is really converted. Kilgore himself would write an article in the Review thanking Ellen White and A.T. Jones for making clear what they had missed in Minneapolis. And that was generally how things went, wherever they went. Ministers and leaders would break down and admit that they had been wrong. But it was a hard slog. They had landed on Normandy Beach, but now they had to fight their way through the thick bocage of France. We've noted before how A.T. Jones had always wanted to teach at Battle Creek College. 
The General Conference had even recommended that he do so, but the board of the college just kind of smiled and said, sure, yeah, we'll get right on that. And then they did nothing. It took a joint meeting of the General Conference Committee and the school board to finally get Jones a hearing. There was no question that he was a gifted teacher. It was never about his competence. Jones was made the promise that he wouldn't teach anything out of harmony with the views of the school, meaning, really, Uriah Smith. And to that, Jones agreed. This is striking when you remember that Butler and Smith had tried to pass a resolution making it illegal to teach anything in any Adventist college that isn't approved by the General Conference leadership. It was on that issue that Willie Wright wrote that he and his mother had fought hard to kill that idea dead. What Smith couldn't get at the General Conference, he got in the boardroom. The Indiana Conference effectively banned Jones from speaking there for two reasons. First, his sermons were really, really long, which is true, although it's unclear why the people of Indiana especially lacked the patience that every other conference had. So you might expect the second reason for banning Jones to be just as thoughtful, and it turns out it was. Indiana didn't like the fact that Jones ate three meals a day rather than two meals. They just thought this set a bad example because, hold on, it'll come to me. Wait for it. Yeah, I have no idea. And it should be noted that Jones often did himself no favors. It was easy for Jones to get excited by opposition and then run to the other extreme. Jones started saying that human works are of no value whatsoever. Ellen White warned him about making statements like these, she would remind him that even if Butler and Smith were wrong on this issue, they were still elders in the church with a wealth of experience and knowledge. Don't dismiss them. Don't insult them. Don't antagonize them. She clarified for Jones what has become the Adventist position on this issue. In short, that our good works don't save anyone, but neither can we be saved without good works. In other words, you're saved by your faith alone, but if that faith is sincere, it should endeavor to do what Jesus commands us to do. In another case, Jones, echoing Isaiah, said that all our righteousness is as filthy rags, and the more we try to keep God's law, the filthier we are. Well, naturally, Uriah Smith fired back in the review. He wrote that, quote, "...perfect obedience to the law will develop perfect righteousness." And that is the only way we can attain to righteousness, end quote. So if keeping the law is the only way to be righteous before God, then it cannot possibly mean that all of our works are filthy rags. Now, Ellen White shielded Jones on this one. Someone asked her what Uriah Smith meant by this article, and Ellen White just blurted out, quote, he doesn't know what he's talking about. She privately warned Smith to leave Jones alone, too. Smith couldn't. He was convinced that Jones's argument ultimately led to the destruction of Adventism, and Smith had to save Adventism. Smith responded to Jones in another article, confessing that clearly we needed Jesus' help to keep the law. But that wasn't really persuasive, because then he allowed J.F. Ballinger to publish two articles which were entitled Justification by Works, and I'll let you guess what those articles were about. Butler, too, joined in. There is, he wrote in the review, a sentiment prevailing almost everywhere. Only believe in Christ and you are all right. Jesus does it all. Butler called this, quote, 
one of the most dangerous heresies in the world. End quote. Wasn't the third angel's message of Revelation 14.12, the very message the Seventh-day Adventist Church was called to proclaim, a call to keep the commandments of God? But of course, Jones wasn't saying that Jesus does it all and we just sit back and relax. Flush with confidence coming out of 1888, Jones, however, would increasingly make bigger and more extravagant claims, like the claim that if we're in Christ, we will eventually stop sinning. Yeah, this stuff made it easy for people to refuse to allow Jones to preach. But Jones couldn't be denied entirely. Because he had also become the church's expert on religious liberty issues. We noted before that the 1880s were filled with talk and action on Sunday laws, and that these laws meant the persecution of Adventists. So if half of the church didn't care to hear Jones talk about righteousness by faith, they did want to hear more about what those Sunday laws meant. So in December 1888, just a month after the General Conference session, Jones was sent to offer testimony before the United States Senate Committee on Education and Labor. That senatorial committee was headed by none other than Henry Blair. Now back in episode 29, we hinted at the first National Sunday Law being proposed in 1888. This law would make it so no one could work on Sunday, most places would be closed, and the hope was that people would go to church. This law was authored by Henry Blair, who was a senator from New Hampshire. So Jones was sent to offer Blair the reasons why Adventists objected to such a law. Before Jones got up to talk, the Seventh-day Baptists apparently asked for an exemption. You can pass the law, just give us an exemption so it doesn't apply to us. And when it was Jones's turn, he refused to ask that Adventists be exempted from the law. Adventists, Jones told the senator, refused to acknowledge that Congress even has a right to pass such a law. Blair's arguments were what you might imagine. This law would improve public morality. Going to church is good for people. They learn morals at church. So government has a duty to incentivize people going to church. Let's make it as easy as possible. While Blair recognized that the government cannot force people to go to church, they can close down bars, sports, parades, you name it, so that the only remotely fun thing to do is to go to church. Jones noted that some supporters of the bill had been saying some crazy things. There was this pastor in Kansas City, for instance, who had said that he wanted to see the day come when the churches of America would get together and decide on laws, and then Congress would simply rubber stamp whatever the churches decided. That was terrifying to Adventists. But Blair dug in. Blair's point of view was that the majority of a nation has the right to regulate society. The government's job was to carry out the will of the majority. Blair asked Jones what he thought about a potential law making blasphemy illegal. Blair asked, is it good for citizens to profane God? Jones said, of course not. So Blair went on, why shouldn't we have a law in the public interest making blasphemy illegal. Isn't that government's job? Jones replied that, quote, it is for the good of society that men shall be Christians, but it is not in the province of the state to make Christians. For the state to undertake to do so would not be for the benefit of society. It never has been, and it never can be. 
Jones then noted that blasphemy laws were how the ancient Romans persecuted Christians. If America were to pass such a law, how would we be any different than the Romans? On what basis could America complain if the Chinese or the Muslims started persecuting Christians? In order to pass such a law in America, we would have to recognize the right of a Muslim nation to pass discriminatory laws against Christians. Jones concluded, quote, The only use that ever has been, or ever is, made of any such blasphemy laws in any country is to give some religious bigots who profess popular religion an opportunity to vent their wrath upon persons who disagree with them, end quote. But, in Blair's mind, America was a nation of Christians, and thus Christians had the right to pass Christian laws. What's interesting is that this put Jones and the Adventists on the same team as some liberal-minded kind of secular thinkers. The famous newspaper in Tombstone, Arizona, called the Tombstone Epitaph, wrote a brilliant analysis of this new law and the efforts by Christians to pass it. It's a little lengthy, so bear with me. Quote, The National Reform Association has been for 25 years engaged in a fanatical scheme to secure such an amendment to the Constitution of the United States as will indicate that this is a Christian nation. In short, they want to change the Constitution so that their church dogmas may be enforced by law. It may be argued, and often is, that such a measure can never be carried out in this free republic, but we must not be too sure of that. Whether they succeed or not depends on the vigilance of the people. It will not do to place too much confidence in congressmen or presidents, for they have allowed themselves to be wheedled into imposing many a bad measure upon the people. We have said that such a measure is looking backward. It is going back toward the religious intolerance from which the early colonies of America were only freed by the Federal Union of States and the adoption of the present liberal constitution. That there is a fast-growing sentiment in favor of such a move, there is abundant evidence, notably the prominence given to the Blair Sunday Rest Bill and joint resolution introduced in the last Congress. Never before could such propositions have received any market attention in United States Senate. End quote. This could have been written by an Adventist word for word. Jones earned Blair's cordial respect for his insightful testimony, and many other opponents of the bill ended up reprinting Jones's articles and sermons on the subject. So many citizens were asking for copies of Jones's testimony that the Senate had to pass a resolution allowing them to print four times as many copies as they were legally allowed to. Overall, the Senate printed 32,000 copies of Jones's conversation with Blair, and who knows how many newspapers would go on to reprint whole sections of it from there. In the end, Blair failed to get his law passed. He tried to make it sound a little bit more secular in 1889, but he failed again. Another congressman tried in 1890 and failed. A bill far more modest than Blair's would eventually be signed into law, but there was a nostalgia for Blair's attempt. In 1909, a group of Christians met at a Methodist church in Washington, D.C. to celebrate what might have been if Blair's bill had been passed 21 years before. Blair himself even showed up. I mean, how many bills have you ever heard of that didn't get passed but get celebrated 21 years later? The Sunday Laws were an ever-developing story. 
significant enough to talk at length about, but perhaps not so much to get their own episode. The point here is that the situation post-1888 was complicated. People who opposed Jones on righteousness by faith ended up standing side by side with him on religious liberty. Certainly he made himself, in the words of George Knight, into a kind of Adventist folk hero to many of the members of the church. There, these members of this small Protestant church saw one of their own acquitting himself capably before the United States Senate, championing their cause and the cause of others in religious liberty. It made them proud to see him up there. Important as it was, religious liberty was never going to change the hearts of Adventists by making them more loving toward each other. The real turning point in the church's Reconstruction period, the far more important battle, came in the spring of 1889, when the church decided to hold an epic ministerial training school. The first training school lasted from November 1889 to March 1890. It was six months long. And the object of this school was to improve the education of pastors. Most of them could only offer proof texts. That is, when you want to explain the Sabbath, go to these five verses in this order, da-da-da-da-da. They might have the doctrines down. But otherwise, they were woefully ignorant of much of the rest of the Bible. They couldn't talk about the Sabbath or any other doctrine much beyond the verses they knew. So 50 students, 50 pastors gathered in Battle Creek. The newly minted General Conference President, Olson, wanted to preserve peace in the church by inviting both Smith and Jones to teach. Ellen White, however, used the occasion to explode the idea that there was any sort of conspiracy between her, Jones, and Wagner leading up to the 1888 General Conference. It seemed for the first time that both sides began to understand each other. While they certainly didn't agree on the law in Galatians issue, Dan Jones, another general in Butler's army, realized that his side had behaved terribly at the general conference session. As with Kilgore, the light dawned on Dan Jones. He wrote to Willie White, because everybody seems to write to Willie White, about his epiphany. Dan Jones noted that Ellen White told everyone that it isn't what we believe that she felt exercised about. It is not that we should all hold just the same view in reference to the covenants in reference to the law, in Galatians, or in reference to any other point of doctrine, but that we should have the Spirit of Christ and should be united. Dan Jones went on the next day. Ellen White, quote, and Dr. Wagner both say that the points of doctrine are not the matters at issue at all, but it is the Spirit shown by our people in opposition to these questions which they object to. I am perfectly free to acknowledge that the Spirit has not been the Spirit of Christ, it has not been so in my case, and I think I can discern enough to be safe in saying that it has not been so in the case of others. I have often thought over the matter and wondered why it was that such unimportant matters practically should cause such a disturbance, such a division, End quote. Yes, Dan Jones, that's what we've all been wondering. Dan Jones wasn't quite admitting that A.T. Jones or E.J. Wagner were correct in their theology, but he saw more clearly Ellen White's goal through it all. She supported Jones and Wagner, but she wasn't on their team. Ellen White was on Ellen White's team. Her focus wasn't the law or the ten horns or winning some sort of argument. Her focus was on God's people having the attitude of Christ while they discussed the law in the ten horns. 
an Adventist by the name of Taylor Bunch would later say that the 1888 General Conference was very much like how the Israelites rebelled at Kadesh Barnea and ended up wandering in the wilderness for another 40 years. I'll leave you to decide if you think that's a good metaphor. But slowly and surely, the partisans of 1888 started realizing where they went wrong. Maybe there was hope for these Adventists. Maybe they'd get to the promised land after all. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.